We're called to a time of fellowship this morning through the words of the Apostle John. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. From our catechism, we know that sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Our sin is subdued by the word of God. It is that which enables us to die to our sin and live unto righteousness. Jesus Christ came for the express purpose that his children could be sanctified. If we read John in just chapter 17, just a little further, it says, For our sakes, Jesus sanctified himself, so that we also might be sanctified by God's word. And maybe a loose uh, paraphrase, but that's what it says, that we're sanctified by God's word. As we hear the word of God preached this morning, let it sanctify you, set you apart, make you holy for God's service. It's a delight to be here uh, today with you all. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. And uh, we're going to dive into this passage, to this book. Today and next week, it's my plan to do um, an introduction, simply uh, to introduce us all this week and next week to this book. So we'll be talking a lot about this book. We'll be in it, but the focus is going to be uh, uh, preparing the way so that when we read this, um, a, a lot of the legwork's been done, so we'll, we'll understand it more quickly. So Esther chapter 1, 1 through 3, it will be the opening reading the, the, this morning, and then uh, we'll dive in uh, to this passage. <clears throat> I'd ask you, if you would, stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word, for our reverence out of respect for our King Jesus and his word. Hear now the word of, all, of Almighty God. Now it took place in those days of Ahasuerus, the, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on, the throne, on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces, being in his presence. As for the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Lord, what a delight it is to gather here this day as your covenant people around your word, knowing, O Lord, that it is your word that we need. It is you. It is your word for us to grow, to flourish, to be the people you've called us to be, to worship you aright. Speak to us now, Lord. Feed us richly in your word. And trust this time to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you know from the book of Isaiah, when we study there, that Isaiah is written to three different groups of people. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 was written to Isaiah's uh, contemporaries, intended for Isaiah's uh, contemporaries in 740 B.C. But then 40 through 55 was written to a generation 100 years later, those who would be going into, into exile. And then still, 56 through 66 was written for a people a hundred years after that who were coming back from exile. Now you say, what's the point? Well, the point of that is understanding that gives us insight into God's word. For example, Isaiah 40. I'll know the verse very well. It says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has, has ended. Now you read a verse like that without any context, and you're going to think, well, evidently there must have been some battle, and Jerusalem won, and those, the, the soldiers have all left, and Jerusalem is now fine. And that is not what's going on here. Isaiah 40 is right when God's uh, city, uh, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. Her warfare is not over, it's just begun. God's people are going into exile. They're going to come back in 70 years and rebuild it. This is in no way the end of the warfare against Jerusalem. So how do we understand this verse? Well, if we, if we understand that it was written to a people going into exile, our eyes are opened. I'll read the whole verse now. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. 
and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. That's the warfare. See, brothers and sisters, God tells his, his uh, people, when you're facing the wall, when, you're, when your back's to the wall and you're facing uh, the enemy, the greatest glorious consolation you'll ever have is not that that enemy's going to go away. That that cancer is going to be resolved. The greatest and most glorious message is that Jesus Christ dealt with the greatest war, the world war, that is currently raging in this world. And that is the war against sin, Satan, and our flesh. Brothers and sisters, that's done in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's done in the Messiah. And that's exactly what Isaiah 40 is giving as words of encouragement to a people going into exile. Incredible. Well... Again, understanding context is going to help us understand the passages that we're reading. Well, Esther is one such book where understanding context is incredible. The time indicators in the book of Esther place this book in the very beginning of Xerxes or Ahasuerus' reign. Okay, I was going to have a slide up there with dates. Write these dates down in your notes. Would you please? Esther 1.3 tells us it took place in the third year of Xerxes' reign, which is 483 B.C. Just write 483 B.C. down. And then Esther 2.16, if you've got your Bible open, it occurred in the seventh year of Xerxes, which places that at 479 B.C. Write 479 B.C. in your notes. And then lastly, we know from Esther 3 through 10 and the time indicators there that these occurred in the 12th and 13th years of Xerxes' reign, which is 474 to 473. So we're dealing with really the first 10 years, actually for 16 years, or I'm sorry, 13, but uh, the first 10 years of Xerxes' reign. Now, biblically speaking, historically, what's going on with God's people at this time? Because to understand that is going to understand the importance and the um, um, urgency of this book. Well, what's going on? Well, if we go back in our minds, the exiles of the southern kingdom of Judah, 605, 597, 586, occurred. So look on your notes. You're looking at 483. Okay, so that's 100 and something years, right? God promised that through Jeremiah prior to that time that that exile would last 70 years. So God's people in, in, in 539, you know all this history, in 539, uh, Cyrus the Persian rose up, took over Babylon, and in order to secure his power, he uh, placated all of the religions of, of the um, empire, including Judaism. And so he told the Jews, go home. And, I, and with them, he gave them help and supplies. Go home, rebuild. So in 539, look at those, those dates again, 539, God's people went home. Now you would think, that, that that would be a glorious thing, but it turns out it couldn't have been worse. First of all, after the decree of 539, only 42,360 people went. We know that from Ezra 2, 64, I believe. Only 42,360. Now, you might think that's a lot of people, but there's millions in the exile. What that means, brothers and sisters, is God's people have become paganized in the exile. Now, what does that mean? I don't mean that they're worshiping Baal or they're worshiping uh, you know, a Marduk. It means that they'd become worldly. They had become very horizontal. That's what we mean by paganized. Very worldly, very horizontal. God, yes, they were Jews. Yes, they recognized God was their God, but he was far off. He had long since been a God who they called friend. He was as far off being, and thus they just, their lives consisted of just getting by living each day, day after day, making sure we have enough food on the table, making sure no one gets killed, just trying to live. And that means compromise. If that means not doing what we ought to be, I'm sorry, ultimately should do, that's okay. We're just trying to live life. Well, there, weren't, there were 42,360 people who weren't that mentality. They would be aptly described by Zephaniah when he wrote these words in 3.18. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. There were 42,366 men and women and children who were burdened by the fact that God's glory was not being proclaimed. They were burdened by the fact that that land that God claimed was now inhabited by Gentiles. They were burdened by that and so much more. So they went. They went. And how discouraging. Only 42,000. And when they got there, well, you and I would expect, they're the Green Berets. They love Jesus. 
they're going to be blessed. They're going to be so blessed. They're going to go there and touch the earth, and it's just going to sprout forth. But it doesn't. They get there, and they realize the monumental task of rebuilding the, the temple was a zillion times higher than they ever could have dreamt. Remember that? Oh, my. So they quickly let off building the temple. It didn't take them but a little bit of time. Then they got the opposition of the Samaritans and, and, and the Gentiles. And then they got famine and disease and, and difficulties. It's as if the world and God were against them. So what did they do? They let off. And so Cyrus died in, um, uh, let me see the, the dates, not that it, mat- it matters. Cyrus dies and um, he raises up um, Darius. God does. And Darius now is the new ruler of uh, Persia. And, 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 and what does he do? He sends Haggai and, and Zechariah. And they go and they encourage the people God to rebuild. And they rebuild the temple. And now it's 516 and the temple's rebuilt, and now the world isn't going to be so good because we're going to hear birds singing because everything's, we're now obeying God, and what happened? Nothing. Ezekiel talked about God's Shekinah glory redescending upon that temple. Well, that's the church, okay? Not that temple, but God's people expected to be that temple. So once again, this generation, now the second generation, 516, uh, 39, we're on the second generation. They rebuild it, and what did God do? So you can imagine what happens to people. You know what would happen to you. You're disillusioned. Where is God? Is he just angry with us? Maybe he doesn't care like he used to. Maybe I think he's able. Maybe he's not able. But we think that he's able. But maybe, maybe we're just so wicked God could never love us. God is done with us. Now I'm not done with God. I'm going to keep on serving him. But I'm telling you right now, we are distant from God. And from 516 on... That's what's set upon God's people. Now, look at your dates. When did Esther, when was Esther written? Esther was written at a time when not only in the diaspora, but in Palestine, Judaism, Christianity is in bad shape. God's people are distant from God. They're wandering in their hearts. Their hearts are cold. And so you know what God did? Fill in the blanks here, guys. You know what God did? He gave them the book of Esther. The history of Esther is for what I have, 483, 10 years, to 473, if we've got that right. Esther wasn't written until around 450. So all this is going on, 20 plus years later, 450, it's estimated for 40, 430, somewhere in that vicinity. Well, guess who's also on the scene? Malachi, 444. So God gives his people this incredible message to a people who believe God's turned his back on them. Brothers and sisters, Esther is a book written to people who think God's turned his back on them because of what they've done or haven't done because of what's going on in their lives. Man, I've, I, I'm of the zealous people. I'm the one who would have gone back. But how long would it take before in your zealousy, how many cancers, difficulties, job losses, hardships would it take for you to say, it's vain to serve the Lord. That's God's people. That's the people to whom Esther's written. Okay, so Esther is given to them uh, for that uh, purpose. Now, what's interesting about Esther, you may or may not know this, But Esther, most of you probably know this, does not mention the name God. This is the only book in the Bible. You say, well, what about Song of Solomon? Aha, there's a reference there. This is the only book in the Bible, one of the only, I I think it's the only book next to Song of Solomon where God is not mentioned by name. Why? Why would God write a book? Why would God have a book? Because as you know, Hebrews won't kind of show it, then say it. So what is God showing to his people? He is showing a setting which is right where God's people were living. God, he's not part of my life. He doesn't exist. Oh, he's up there. But he's not down here where I live. Esther's a book to demonstrate to God's people that while God may be absent, while he may visibly be silent, he may not be there in person as you see it. Nevertheless, God is intimately near you at all times, in all times, through all times, no matter what you've done or what you haven't done. Isn't that incredible? That's what this book's about. It's about God's glorious 
presence in his life and his unstoppable, unconditional devotion, dedication, and love of his people. We're going to get to that word. The word used in the Hebrew to describe that and a whole lot more is the word chesed, his loving kindness. That's what this book is about. It's a glorious um, treatment of the, of the majesty, sovereignty, and devotion of God to his people. Incredible. All right, well, my, well that's, that's my introduction. What I want to do is introduce you to this book. So first, let me give you the historical setting. We're going to zip through that as fast as I can. I don't want you to get bogged down. But you need to know a little bit about this because it's in Esther. Okay, so real quickly, as I said, the Southern Kingdom exile, 605. Jeremiah came up, 70 years. Okay, from 539 occurred. God's people came back um, and, uh, to the promised land um, at the hand of Cyrus. Well, Cyrus didn't live long. He died in 530 after he conquered, and then his son uh, Cambyses died after, right after him. So leadership of Persia came to Darius I, um, who became a very important figure in biblical history. He was the one who sent Ezra and those guys back. He's the one who, under Haggai and Zechariah, how Haggai, I get, strike Ezra and Nehemiah, he's the one who sent Haggai and Zechariah back, basically under his reign. He's the one who ordered God's people to get to work on that temple. So Darius is a massive, important leader in Scripture. Um, next to Cyrus, two phenomenal kings that God put on the throne for his people. Now, ironically, Darius, when he was on the throne of Persia, he wanted to, con- he wanted to expand the borders, so he wanted to conquer Greece. So he, that started the, the first Greco-Persian War of ancient history. And he attacked it. And he's as a great king. You expect him to have been triumphant. Well, guess what? He wasn't. The Battle of Marathon, you know that. You've heard of the Marathon Battle, right? Uh, Marathon. Um, He was decimated. So he came back, bloody nose, but he still was a great king. Well, his son, um, when he died, um, 486, his son, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, became king. Immediately there were some uh, rebellions he squashed, and the first thing Xerxes did as king, undisputed king, was he was going to prove to the world he was, he was greater than Darius. Because Darius was a great king. He was going to prove to the world he was greater than his father. So what did he do? He was going to do that which his dad could not do. He attacked Greece. This is the second Greco-Persian war. And uh, um, so he attacked Greece. And uh, um, this is... <laughs> and, and he did. Four, it's 41 to 479. And he did. He far surpassed his father. He proved to the world. He is greater than his father at failure, okay? Because he miserably botched it up. He had the greatest, largest army the ancient world had ever seen to that point. He had the greatest naval fleet the ancient world ever saw in any age, all at his disposal. All he had to do is park his navy in the Mediterranean and stop the food coming in, and Greece would have been conquered. But no, he goes up. So four main things. Look at your notes. He has to cross this land water known as the Hellespont. And so they build these little ships. They go over, but a big storm uh, comes up and 600 and, and what is it? Uh, 674 ships are destroyed overnight. Well, in response to that, he's angry. He killed the guys who were in charge of getting the, 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 the uh, soldiers over. And then he had his soldiers lash the Mediterranean 300 times. And then he branded the Mediterranean. Okay, he did that. And then after that, you go to Thermopylae. If you know anything about Thermopylae, what is it, the 300, which was a horrible movie. But it was basic, and it wasn't that. It was where they came down, the Greeks needed time. So they sent the Spartans leading 6,000 Greeks up to this very small pass, which basically abrogated the power of the Persians. So it became a you know, 10 on 10 fight. Well, it looks like it was a victory for Persia because they, in two or three days, win or however long it might have been, I, I'm not, I don't know, a week, two, I don't know. But they win, but it was a loss. The Greeks lost 6,000 men, the Persians lost 20,000 soldiers. That then brings them down to the next big battle, which was the naval sea battle of Salamis. On the, your map, 
um, it's this little tiny cove, not tiny, it's this cove. Well, Xerxes was leading this. He stood on top of a mountain which overstood, overlooked the bay, and they and the, the navy did exactly what he ordered, and he was suckered in by the Greeks. The Greeks basically made Salamis another Thermopylae, where it was so close quarters, all of his great naval fleet was basically abrogated. And so these, these, he had his ships just go in, attack, as they withdrew. He, they went in and on the mountain overlooking this bay. Herodotus records that all he could do was groan as thousands upon thousands of men lay dead in the water. Okay, the water was red that day. So he tucked tail. He went back to Sardis. He left his generals in charge, and that lead, led to two more naval battles, or one more naval battle, one more land. The Battle of uh, Plataea, which wiped out his army, and then the Battle of Mycal, which wiped out his navy. Uh, one year later, after that, so it was a two-year battle, one year in Sardis with all that going on, then Xerxes tucks tail, goes home with the bloody nose, disgraced and ruined. All right? So that's Xerxes. With that, that's the historical background which will have bearing upon Esther. With that, let me dive into Esther. I want to look with you this morning, with the time left, just at the five key characters of this book, the, the main players, and then we're going to um, make some application. First of all, the first uh, character is Xerxes, Ahasuerus. Uh, following his massive and embarrassing defeat, not only embarrassing for his country, but for everybody else, he came home and he, had, he, he, he poured himself into pleasure. Xerxes was an awful leader. Darius and Darius, phenomenal. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, horrible. So he gave himself to pleasure. He did, he did do some building projects, which he's noted for, but he gave himself to pleasure. And what's amazing, Herodotus, one-third of that book is written about Xerxes. Okay, so we have a lot of, a lot of information about this man's character and his person. And what's amazing, Esther reflects it perfectly. Let me show you a couple of things about Xerxes from Esther. Number one, he was incredibly proud and so enjoyed flaunting his wealth and power. Notice verse 4 of chapter 1. And he, and he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. Man, this was him in his heyday. He loved just letting people think he's a great king because look, look how much money I've got. Look at how, how long we can party, 180 days. Wow, I'm a great king. Secondly, he was a showman. He loved flaunting, um, wowing other people with his person, his grandeur, his greatness. Um, G. Ricciotti wrote these words, Xerxes inherited none of the good qualities of his predecessors, but only a love of opulent display, which progressively sapped his moral fiber. Thirdly, he was bothered, um, I'm sorry, he was hot-headed and known for his bad temper. That's one of the funniest things when I read about this. Um, so Xerxes was known as a hothead. He lost his temper and killed a lot of people. He got angry at the Hellespont, so he beat it 300 times and branded it to make, make sure that whoever did that got, got their, their up, a comeuppance. But he was horribly angry. Well, he had this, this written in a Persopolis um, on, a, this, on this uh, um, uh, what, what, uh, rock face. It, it reads this. Um, I am not hot-tempered. Whatever befalls me in battle, I hold firmly. I am ruling, ruling firmly my own will. Guys, if you have to put in print on a stone wall that you're not hot-tempered, you're probably hot-tempered, okay? That's what he's known for. Um, he also was easily flattered, Esther 1.21. You can read that, 2.4. Um, and that's not a good thing because if you're easily flattered, you get people around you who are yes-men. You think they're on your side, but they're not. And that it was his ultimate demise. He was assassinated in 465 B.C. by the captain of his bodyguard. And lastly, he was incredibly materialistic. Notice uh, Esther 3.9, Haman speaking. He wants to kill the Jews. See, so he's going he's to try to get the king, manipulate the king, and is saying, go for it. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that the Jews be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's uh, treasuries. Guys, all it took was that, and you got it. Whatever you want. Okay, he was a materialistic, hedonistic, a really wicked man, okay, um, living for today, forgetting about uh, tomorrow. That's Xerxes. Well, he was married to a, a woman, a wonderful woman named Vashti, great wife, kind of woman you want to bring home to your mom and dad men. Um, 
kind of women that you don't want to be, ladies. Um, this is Vashti, um, Xerxes' wife. We're introduced to her in Esther 1, verse 10. And we don't know much about her from Esther, but we do know this. Notice verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded all these men um, who are, are served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the, the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's a command. Um, uh, which was delivered by uh, the eunuchs. So she's a woman that has some strength to her. Too bad she wasn't on the throne. She had some strength. You didn't want to mess with this woman. Now, that's all we know about Esther, but history reveals a whole lot more. While he was in Sardis, when Xerxes was in Sardis, after the failure, he went to Sardis, he stayed there one year waiting to hear news of how the campaign went. He fell in love with his brother's wife. His brother's wife said, look, I'm your sister-in-law. You know, that'd be gross. So he says, oh, so she says but my daughter, okay? So he has a sordid affair in the presence of Vashti. So Vashti's there. In the presence of Vashti with this woman who's not part of the harem, just the daughter of the wife of his brother. Um, and, well, guess what? She bides her time. When they get back to Susa, the main capital, the, his next birthday, for a birthday present, she has the wife, of the mother of the or the mother of the girl, his sister-in-law, he has her mutilated and handed to Xerxes as his birthday present. So she's a pretty pretty brutal woman. That's that's his wife. That then brings us to Haman, and Haman's the antagonist. He's the bad guy in this story. Xerxes is a, a clueless hedonist. Vashti is who Vashti is, but Haman's the bad guy. Okay, Haman was an Amalekite who uh, was descended from King Agag. So in the Bible, he's known as an Agagite, after the name of his descendants, which is Agag. Well, if you recall, 1 Samuel 15, Saul was supposed to kill Agag and wipe out the Amalekites in a holy war, but he doesn't. In fact, there's enough that remains such that this man, Haman, could live uh, quite a few years later. Okay, so he is, this man is the descendant of King Agag. Um, and these are the things we know about him from Esther, which I think is probably quite reliable since they got it, since this book hit Xerxes on the head. They, they, they perfectly described him. Well, notice Haman. Haman certainly was intelligent and quite capable. Esther 3.1 says that he was promoted the second in command of all of Persia. So the man was not flimsy. He was intelligent and capable, clearly. Um, thir- uh, secondly, as a descendant of King Agag, he hated the, uh, the Jews, Esther 3, 6. In fact, a common phrase throughout this book that you're going to read is, Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So he hated the Jews, couldn't stand them, most likely because of the story behind Agag and Saul. Thirdly, he was one who lived in, in extremes and so was incredibly intense. Okay, this guy was impulsive and intense. When it comes to killing Mordecai, he raises up a 75-foot pole to hang him upon. When it comes to getting permission from the king to, to do that, he doesn't arrive at the opening of business day the next morning. He gets there at 2 or 3 in the morning so that he's ready. I mean, the guy's impulsive. The guy is, um, uh, is one of extremes, which you will see. And lastly, the big part, his God and Achilles' heel was the praises of men. Okay, this is what drove this man psychologically, if you will. Esther 3.5, look with me there. Esther 3.5, we read uh, these words. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. The Hebrew is strong here. He, he, he just had a meltdown. This guy couldn't handle it because one solitary man, a Jew didn't bow before him. You say, yeah, you're reading too much into that. Well, skip down, if you will, to chapter 6, verse 6. So now he's had the plot. His plan is to kill all the Jews and all that other stuff. Um, And so he comes to the the king to get permission to hang Mordecai. And we pick it up in verse 6. So Haman came in to the king and said to him, what is to be done for the man? And I'm sorry. So Haman came into the king and the king said to him, so he comes into the king to get a permission to kill Mordecai, and the king says, hey, give me your um, advice. You're my trusted advisor. 
What's to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, hmm, who, would, who would the king want to honor but me? So this moment, a moment, he could ask, whatever he says, he's, he's, he's going to get in his mind. It could be money. It could be places of power for his, his sons. It could be women. It could be wealth. It could be all kinds of stuff. Notice what he asks. He says, well, let them bring a royal robe, which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, on those uh, uh, and on um, whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to, see, uh, to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, lead him on horseback to the sea square, and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Brothers and sisters, this is his passion. So now you know why when chapter 3 or 2, when we get there, when Mordecai doesn't bow, it drives him. He can't sleep. He's crazed because of this. Then add to the fact that he's a Jew. Ah! He can't handle it. Um, That then brings us then to Mordecai. According to Esther, this book, he's the son of Jair and a descendant of Benjamin. In fact, Mordecai is related to Saul. You got Saul's children and Agag's children years later fighting it out. Okay, this is Mordecai. Um, Mordecai chose to live in Susa. We'll talk about that at some point. He chose uh, to live in the capital city. Okay, that's where he chose. If you and, and think of Xerxes' court and as evil as he was, wicked as he was, Susa became a cesspool of wretchedness and sin. Mordecai chose to, to live there. Mordecai had a job there. Well, he, he had a niece, or a cousin, not a niece, a cousin named Esther, whose parents all died, so he raised her. He raised Esther, Hadassah. Um, now, it's interesting that his name, as it is, is Mordecai, because it's the, basically, it's Marduk. They called him Marduk, is what his name was. He was named after the chief god of the, of the Babylonian pantheon. Now, for most in the ancient world, they had those names. So Daniel was Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach. So, you know, that's not a big deal. But brothers and sisters, in, in this context, as you're going to see, it sort of is. He's sort of, he's, 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 he's paganized. He's, he's not worshiping foreign gods. But he certainly is not a devout servant of the living God, as we'll see. Okay, at least at the beginning. Okay, so let me give you some of that. In Esther, we learn he most certainly was an intelligent and capable man, just like Haman. Esther 2.19 indicates he was a magistrate. He was at the city gates because he was adjudicating cases. That's who this guy is. He's a, he's a powerful man in Persia. Had a great job. His uh, cousin doesn't have parents. Come live with me. No problem. Okay, so he obviously is a very intelligent and capable man. Not uh, surprisingly, he has some very str- uh, a very strong sense of justice. If you look at Esther 2.22, he finds out about this plot. We'll get there. And what does he do when he finds out about this plot? 2.21 through 23. What does he, he do? Brothers, in the ancient world, if you found about a plot on a king, you could use that to milk power, to milk money, to milk uh, positions of, of honor. He could have done a whole lot. He tells Esther, who tells the king. Why? He's a man of justice. A sense, a high sense of right and wrong um, in some ways. He also was stubborn. Esther 3, 4, he refused to bow when Mordecai went by. When we get to chapter 3, I'll show you verse, a couple verses in the Old Testament where you've got godly men bowing before kings. There, there's nothing wrong with him bowing here. Nothing wrong with him bowing. All the other Jews are bowing. But in his stubbornness, he refuses to bow and he almost wipes out the entire race of the Jews. Good job, Mordecai. Um, furthermore, he hated Amalekites, we know that because he refused to bow. Um, initially, he's portrayed as being earthbound. Okay, so think of the advice he gives his cousin. Very earthbound, very paganized. He's living in this horrible place. He tells his cousin Esther, don't you dare, verse 10 of chapter 2, if you want to look at it with me. Esther did not make known her people to her, or, or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Think of it, brothers and sisters. This means she can't practice Judaism. She can't read the Word of God. She can't pray openly. And when in, in the Old Testament, they prayed openly. Think of Daniel. Okay? She can't pray. 
She can't observe feasts. She can't gather with God's people. She, she's by herself. And that's at her uncle or, or her cousin's command. So not, not a, a, a devout servant of the Lord, okay? At first, and that's the key, Mordecai is a prototypical Jew living in that day. That's the whole point. What will God do with these compromised Jews? What does God do with the compromised Christian? What does he do? Does he give them cancer? Does he, does he just let them go? Esther tells us the answer. Because that's where Mordecai is when this book starts. Um, De Guide uh, wrote these words. Mordecai worked so hard to fit in as a good citizen of the empire that when we hear the Jewish exiles described as those who, quote, whose laws are different from, from those of every other people and who do not obey the king, we feel that Mordecai, at least, was being grossly misrepresented. In other words, <laughs> you would have never known he was a Jew. Those Jews stick out because they don't follow the, the given laws. Mordecai, does, he does. He's very happy to be Persian. He goes on, Even though the charge should have been true of all God's people, Mordecai was far from being an obstinate standout. He showed little enough concern over the ethical issues involved in his cousin Esther being taken into the harem of the Gentile king with its defiling food and corrupting practices. In fact, he was the one who insisted that far from being in the least bit different from other people's, Esther should entirely conceal her Jewishness. He was no Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego. He had been a good servant of the empire, quietly, uh, quietly obeying all the other laws of the king, uh, committed to fitting in. Brothers and sisters, he's a worldly man. He's just like the rest of Judaism. Now, you say, what about those ones who wouldn't fit in? Well, they're a little bit more devout. But Mordecai, he's the prototypical. He's, he's the prototype of, I think, modern Christians today. He's a prototype of of us perfectly now we love the, the lord we want to be in the lord but when's the last time you shared the gospel with someone when's the last time you opened your mouth and said hey i'm a i'm a christian don't do that or do that when's the last time you engaged culture and didn't care what people thought about you that's mordecai he hid he was a, he was one of those spy christians you know, the ones in scripture, I don't know, what, you can't find them in scripture, but the ones who, who, who don't let people know who they are. Okay, that was Mordecai. Um, now, but that's at first. Because notice, Mordecai is a genuine child of God. Notice my seventh note on him. And yet, in spite of his compromised state, Mordecai was a genuine child of God whose faith and trust in the end emerges. Notice verse 14 of chapter 4. Turn there if you were in your Bibles. He told his, his cousin, if you remain silent at this time, listen to the statement from this worldly Christian. Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Where did he get that notion? How does he know relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews in another place? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. This is Abrahamic covenant all the way. That's shocking from this man. But do you see what trial did? Do you see what God did? He brought forth his faith. In other words, he didn't say, I don't care about you. You're sinning. I'm washing my hands of you. No, he drew near to this man and he brought forth Mordecai's faith such that by the end of this book, he is a moral hero. He becomes this glorious person whom God's people should emulate um, as they follow Christ. But at this point, at the book opens, he's not. He's the typical Jew living in these times. Compromised, alienated, feeling distant from God, feeling bereft of God, feeling alone, knowing God's there, giving deference to God, but just trying to make it so that he doesn't get killed and does well. Okay, that brings us to Esther. And Esther, as I just mentioned, was the, an orphan from the tribe of Benjamin. Her Jewish name, Hadassah, means myrtle or dove. Her Babylonian name was Esther, which came from the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, the sex god. The primary two deities in Babylon were Marduk and Ishtar. It's where we get the word Easter, okay? Her name's Esther. Now, again, it could just be her Babylonian name, but I think at the beginning of the book, it reflects a little bit about her character. Because notice what Esther tells us about Esther. First off, she most certainly was beautiful. Esther 2, 7, the rabbis believe she was the most beautiful woman this world's ever seen. Josephus also makes that claim. 
She's one of the top four or five women ever created in this world. Her, her looks had to have been striking. Furthermore, and we'll get to that, why we, we say that. Uh, furthermore, she was quite adept at manipulation. She was a people pleaser par excellence. Re, go to Esther 2.9. Esther 2.9, speaking with, um, with Haggai, the eunuch in charge of caring for the um, uh, harem of the king. So this man... Didn't would not fall in love with those women. This man's a eunuch. He would not be be wowed by their beauty because this man that's what his job was. To do anything else would be killed. So she, uh, what we read about him is that uh, now the the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace. This doesn't mean that he looked at her and said, "Boy, she is one good-looking woman, and she's so kind." You know what? I'm going to take care of her. The Hebrew is much more strong. In fact, when we get there, I'll show you more. But Ian references it. Degui, when he wrote, the writer uses an unusual idiom to tell us that Esther won favor. Nasachen. In Haggai's sight, she worked for her promotion in the house of... She, this isn't something passive. She worked for him to like her. That's the idea. Um, uh, by fitting in to the agenda that the empire set for her. She was willing to let the empire define her uh, a reality. Resistance was not high on her program at this point. On the contrary, she seemed content, even eager to be assimilated. So that's, that's, that's this woman at the beginning. By the end, just like Mordecai, she becomes this incredible uh, um, uh, um, hero of faith. Okay, But at this point, we find her not there yet. Um, in fact, like her uncle, she also lacked biblical uh, conviction, Esther 2.10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them know. Again, she's hiding it, guys. Do you understand what that means? How, what would you think if I told you, guys, on my sabbatical, I met this most wonderful Christian. Really? Tell me about him. Well, he doesn't read the Word of God. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't fellowship with God's people. He sounds like, looks like, and acts like a... T- uh, uh, basically a pagan, but he's a great guy. He's a great a Christian, someone uh, to be emulated. You'd say, you're nuts. That's Esther. At the beginning, she's not in the Word of God. She's not gathered. She, she's on her own, just like Mordecai, in essence. Sad. Incredibly sad. Ian further on adds, the similarity of Esther's position to that of Daniel and his three friends, exiled and, and incorporated into the imperial system, highlights also what is different about them. Daniel and his three friends stood up to the empire quietly but firmly requesting permission to be faithful to their own beliefs by not eating the royal food. They received a permission to, um, uh, to do so, and God in turn blessed them against all odds. They remained unassimilated, and they were nonetheless respected by the, by the um, empire because of God's direct intervention. Unlike Daniel and his three friends, however, Esther had apparently no ethical qualms about um, eating the empire's food and being used as the emperor's plaything. And following Mordecai's advice, her Jewishness remained perfectly uh, concealed. So again, prototypical Jew in that day. Struggling just to make it. And believing that God had left them. That's why God's not mentioned in, in Esther. He's going to show you he hasn't left them. He's not going to say it. He's going to show you. Believing God had forsaken them. Believing God had long ago washed his hands of them and said, you know what? There's those Green Beret Christians whom I love, and you're not one of them. How do I know that? Because of how you live and what you think and what you do and, how, and what you don't do. Christian, it's sad. I don't want anything to do with you. That was the typical Jewish mentality in that day. God had let us down with the exile, and then he let us down again when we came back to the promised land and rebuilt, and nothing happened. That's God. And thus, brothers and sisters, for whom was Esther written? Let's uh, uh, apply it. Actually, before I, I go on, nevertheless, for, that being said, there's no question she was a genuine child of God. When push came to, to, to shove Esther 4, 16, what does she tell her, her maids and, and Haman? Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Finally, someone's turning uh, to God. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or, or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the, in the same way. Brothers and sisters, this, this tribulation brought out her faith. She, it, it refined her, and she comes out singing the praises and the glories of God. 
just like Mordecai. So by the end, we're going to say, wow, what an incredible person God raised up. Let's follow Christ, as, or let's follow her as she follows Christ. Let's follow him as he follows Christ. We're going to end there, but not the beginning. At the beginning, we're going to see these people are compromisers. And that raises the question, what will God do with compromisers? And thus, as I said, for whom was Esther written? Fill in the blank, compromised servants of God. That's who Esther's written to. Who, who have come to, the, to believe that God no longer could be with them on account of their sin. If you're a child of God, brothers and sisters, you remain precious to God regardless of your sin. He will never give you up or abandon you. Recently I read a book, and in the book it talked about Satan's devices. And as a summary, it basically said this. Brothers and sisters, God wants his people to distrust God's power and his willingness, his love, his care. God wants you to question, God wants you, Satan wants you, the demons want you to question God's ability and his willingness to love you. If he can get you doubting God's character, he's one. That's where God's people were. And so Esther is written to those people who are, who, who are ones of encouragement, who need it, but believe God could never love them. Brothers and sisters, but hear this today. I want to wrap up with this application. God loves his crooked sticks. Amen. You've heard of uh, state of God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He loves his crooked sticks. He'll never let you go. If you're his child, he will always, always look kind upon you. He will always be there. He'll always bear you up. It may not be the way you want, but he'll always be there. That, brothers and sisters, is a major plank, a fundamental message of the gospel. I want to close with just three verses real quickly. John 13, 10. Is meditating on this since on sabbatical. And washing the disciples' feet, Jesus came to Peter, knowing full well that soon the disciples would betray him. Yet this is what Jesus said, speaking of the cleansing nature of God's redeeming grace to Peter, who was arguing he was the greatest. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Think with me about that a second. He's talking about justification. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about a right stand before God. If you've been bathed, You'll never need to get a right standing with God again. Think about that. If you've been bathed, you don't need, the, you don't need a bath. You just need to wash your feet because that's what touches the, the world. So Christian, if you've been bathed by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, it is a sin for you to question whether God is um, loving you or continues to look upon you with joy and gladness. How do I know that? Well, 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Do you understand if you question that God has, his, has your best in mind, if you question God's presence in your life, if you're bathed, you may be feeling like, well, that's because I'm such a bad person. But in fact, you are attacking God's character. You're saying God, God could, could love a lot of people but I'm so bad, God is not able to love me. And thus you've just said God's not faithful. If he cleansed you, you're cleansed. You will always be the apple of his eye. God is always with you, as we'll talk about. The problem is, Esther is at a time when God no longer is doing miracles. He's at that low time. We'll talk about this again. So for us to look at the Bible, all these high points, we go, that's typical Christianity, Acts. Or David's time with the prophets, or Jesus' time. That is not prototypical Christianity. That is Christianity when God's adding to the Bible. But when God's not adding to the Bible, guess what is typical of Christianity? Well, this is me. This is my uh, testament. God feels distant. I feel, like God, I feel like God's against me. I just feel it. Things I try don't work. Things I do don't work. You know what I need to do? I need to be, get back in the Word. So I, I am faithful in the Word of God seven days a week. And they need to be good one-hour quiet times. I'm done watching TV. TV's off. I'm going to start exercising, be the better steward of my, uh, of my body. I do all these incredible changes, believing that's exactly what God would have me uh, to do. And you know what changes? Have you ever done that? You feel like, wow, 
Then all these changes. And I don't feel any nearer to God than I was beforehand. I think that's proof God doesn't love me. That's proof I'm not saved. That's proof God must not care about me. That's proof God's distant from me. And I don't know what to do to get him back. Brothers and sisters, Esther's massive message and the message of the gospel is God will never leave you. If you've been bathed, you are bathed forever. It's a matter of faithfulness now. He'll have to be faithful to you because you're without sin judicially. And thus, brothers and sisters, what's God's disposition towards you today, towards all the Jews in Esther's day? But while he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be married. Brothers and sisters, if ever you feel that God has abandoned you, it's only a feeling. For again, he never could. I close with this statement. In seminary, I heard this great statement. Pilgrim's Progress is the Westminster Confession of Faith with people in it. You register that? Pilgrim's Progress is the Westminster Confession of Faith with people in it. Well, guess what, brothers and sisters? Esther is the doctrine of God's um, unconditional and sovereign love and devotion with people in it. That's what this book's about. There's more to it. We're going to come back next week and dive into more about with an introduction. And then in two weeks, we're going to begin in chapter one. Hopefully you're studying along. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this incredible book. Lord, it seems as though every book we study becomes the most impressive, the most incredible book that we could read. And uh, Lord, we know it's because your spirit takes your words and feeds us and we walk away so refreshed. Lord, I pray that indeed you would take these words this incredible book, and do the work of grace which you did in the lives of your people. In Malachi's day, in the life of your people in Esther's day, where, Lord, you drew near to them when they could not see it, and you built them up and strengthened them when they did not uh, realize it, only to leave them as a people hungering and thirsting and longing to serve you all the more. God, do that work within us, we pray. For the one here who does not know you, God, please open their eyes that they might see their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. For the one here this day, dispirited in their walk, feeling like they have, they've done it. They have committed that sin too many times. The things they want to do, they don't. The things they don't want to do, they do. God, I pray for, uh, that you'd open their eyes and let them see that, that now, now that they are bathed, they need no bath. You are th- well thrilled, well pleased with them. Grant them the grace because of that to repent, to seek you, to love you, to serve you, to obey you, to seek to serve you in your word. Lord, may that be all of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.